Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Free Zone Frontier with Steve Krang. He and I are usually on this series, and we talk about everything related to the Free Zone program, which is in Strategic Coach. And so we talk about the different dimensions of being in a free zone, and a free zone is an economic market where you're free from competition. Everything's about collaboration. And we're just really delighted as a guest on a series of podcasts that we did very recently with Dean Jackson. And Dean is more admired in the online marketing world than almost any other individual. We pull back the curtain on the types of conversations that we have in this top level of strategic coach. And these are all individuals who are very, very successful entrepreneurs. They've all experienced 10 times growth in their entrepreneurial company. They're at the point where they are doing things mostly for freedom, freedom of time, freedom of money, freedom of relationship, freedom of purpose. And in these two podcasts, Steve Krein, who has a marvelous business called Startup Health, and Dean Jackson, who is just a guru and a mastermind for many, many different entrepreneurs. And we're going to talk about two issues. One of them is that being an expert in the 21st century means bringing certainty to areas of uncertainty, but always allowing people to know that there's a border between certainty and uncertainty. And the other thing is that problems are usually only solvable when you approach the problem in the right way and you discuss the problem in the right way. And if you don't describe a problem and talk about a problem in the right way, you don't get a solution. So enjoy the podcast. Hi, Dean. Hello. <laughs> One of the things I have here, Steve, because there's a third party that you have in Startup Health, and that's your investment community. Yeah. I'm just wondering if focusing people's attentions on uncertainties, in other words, look, we'd like you to invest in this, and this is the latest up-to-date understanding of what's certain about this, what isn't certain. It actually allows them to see more clearly where their dollars are being corrected because it would seem to me that progress is bringing uncertainties over to certainties. You know, it seems to me that yeah. when you take an uncertainty and move it over the borderline into certainty, yeah. you've made progress. Well, it's interesting because the very thesis around how startup health, we believe moonshots are achievable, is going to be by embracing that uncertainty and getting involved with entrepreneurs and innovators really early, mm -hmm. really early. Quite frankly, when there's only uncertainty about what it is they believe is possible. And so they have this belief that there's a key to achieving a health moonshot in what they're working on. But it's just a belief. It's not any certainty. I mean, it's a thesis, a theory, an idea, a technology. But the uncertainty is really, for the most part, rejected by all of the organizations and people who are looking for certainty and therefore missing the opportunity to apply new ideas, technologies, and approaches to solving these problems. And so almost every healthcare problem that we're facing either individually as families or as a country or as a planet 
every one of the things that needs to be solved needs to be solved by embracing the uncertainty to then work on it to make it certain. Mm. So we don't know what's going to work or what's not going to work over the next 20 years. But if we work towards a goal over the next 20 years or 25 years, that seems impossible today. And you embrace enough people, organizations that will collaborate and lean into that uncertainty, then we think it's possible. So it's actually interesting because almost everything that we do in building our portfolio of companies, you know, we invest in 10, 15 new entrepreneurs every quarter, you know, 50, 60, 70 companies a year, adding to 350 companies we have. We are on a daily basis looking at things that are uncertain Mm -hmm. and simply believing that between the community and the capabilities, going back to the vision capabilities and reach that we have, that it's possible to move it quarter by quarter more towards that certainty. But it's our whole model. I met Aubrey de Grey Mm -hmm. years ago when he was first getting started with the- Immortality in his- Yeah, immortality, conquering death. And what I was- very interested in that he had done was he set up, you know, as the ultimate is we're going to make death optional as the thing, but he broke it down into these are the seven things that need to be solved in order to do that and had people and they were funding research of just solving each one of those micro things as a solution. And it struck me as really a good way to kind of break down a vision, you know, because it was very thoughtful, the way just thinking like each one of these seem like they're independent of each other. They seem like we can do this, you know? Yeah. And it's felt like, wow, this is really something. I've been reflecting on conversations that Joe Polish and I have had over the years, especially since he you know, really started to move towards his genius recovery program and, you know, the changing the conversation around it. You know, it's not not that he has a cure for addiction, but he says part of the problem in relationship to almost all addictions is labeling them as a problem. And he said that probably the better way to start is to see them as a solution. In other words, that People only have addictions because in some ways it's a solution, certainly at a pain level, that they do this because it relieves the pain, even if it's only temporarily. There's a higher and higher cost as you go along for the solution. I've been thinking about that in relationship to death. People say, well, death is the problem. I said, well, maybe it might be uh, more fruitful if you saw death as a solution. What is death a solution to? You know. And that, in fact, death has been used as a solution for all sorts of human problems. Uh Thomas Kuhn wrote the book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and he says almost all the main reason for scientific breakthroughs is the funerals of older scientists. Oh, wow. You know, because older scientists are status-bound, and they control funding, and they control promotion, and they control opportunities for younger scientists. So maybe the only solution to having this breakthrough is have somebody old who's in control die, you know. And so what I'm going to say is, you know, it was like the guy at Abundance 360 who was talking about sleep, and he said, you know, we don't know the exact number of years, but it seems like 
human-like creatures have been around for 200,000 years. And he said, after 200,000 years, we still require eight hours sleep a night. So he said, this whole notion, you know, that somehow you can get along with four hours sleep, that probably would have been solved 100,000 years ago. Or, <laughs> But he said, it isn't. He said, right. we still need this amount of sleep. So instead of accepting it, that you can bypass this or we don't need the sleep, he said, why don't you just take a look? Why is it that we need so much sleep? And now they're starting to really understand what happens when you're sleeping. I mean, amazing things are going on when you can't control your own focus, when you can't control your own retention, which we can do when we're waking. And so my sense is a lot of problems can't be solved simply by the way they're being talked about. Yeah, you know, it brings up the scenarios around what do you talk about when you're discussing a collaboration or a project with others that prevents real creativity? And how often do we assume that things need to be certain? I think it might be right. You might be a bit something on there that there's probably a lot of sort of not revealing that you're uncertain about things, that there's a lot of what's rewarded is confidence about things. Yeah, 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 yeah. We can definitely... We're going to make this happen when they don't have a clue. Look at Bill Gates, you know, saying they could do this program, you know, back in the very beginning, but he didn't have the ability to do it and made it at the uh, last. But I think so many things are sold like that, sold that, oh, yeah, we can definitely do it, which is a throwing of the hat over the fence kind of thing. Yeah. A confidence, but not a certainty. Yeah. Or courage. Yeah. A lot of certainty. Yeah. One of the things I noticed, we talked about this earlier when Game Changer and then quickly Free Zone got started, that I developed right off the bat that some people were coming to take things so that they could make money, you know, like it was going to be money making. And, you know, we asked them to leave the program. You know, we gave them all their money back and we said, leave the program. You're bringing an unhelpful attitude into the room. And I can't have that just to make sure that things work for all the people who are there for the right reasons. We can't have somebody there for the wrong reasons. You know, it was that I've come to take and I want something that I can take right away and make money with. Mm. And I said, if you're coming from there, you're not going to be a collaborator. So that would be a contribution here to this discussion about what is not helpful for collaboration. Well, Overall, how many other things happen as a result of the wrong mindset in a collaborative discussion? You know, coming with the wrong attitude is one thing, but so is other things that contribute to the project or collaboration not working. Like I think about, I think about how many things get started and not finished and how often it starts off confidently ambitious. It starts off being outlined. And then somewhere along the way, it deviates from the impact filter. It deviates from what you were thinking. And I've sometimes found that, and this could happen months after something starts that you kind of go back to. And what you find out is things that you learned by doing it uncovered things you didn't anticipate. And all of a sudden the project ended up somewhere completely different because the uncertainty guided the, or I should say the discovery of the things they were uncertain about 
guided the development of the project stunted its potential. And so I think about how do you keep the integrity of the original idea, go back to the impact filter, keeping the integrity of the original idea impact as much as possible by anticipating the things you can't anticipate, mm-hmm. right? So uncertainty is like, these are the five things that could go wrong or the five things we don't know the answers to. However, I want to make sure we don't deviate from what we want to happen. Who was it that talked about the known unknowns and the unknown knowns? Yeah. And the problem is none of those. It's the known knowns that turned out not to be true. <laughs> That's really the wild cards in all of it. The things that you thought you did know that turned out that's not the way at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like having permission was two things. One is having permission, but also doing the thinking about the uncertainty that I think prevents down the road, you not achieving what you're trying to with that project. Right. Yeah. But then there's the other part of it, which is, can you innovate more by being kept in the loop about when the uncertainty becomes certain. And what I mean by that is, as you go out into the real world with something and experience or become more informed about what you were uncertain about, does it loop back to inform the original visionary or person with the original vision for the project? And where I'm going with this is really the notion of how helpful would it be if there was an ongoing dialogue, almost 360 degree feedback or 180 degree feedback about As you become more informed and you become more certain with the uncertainty, can you keep recalibrating the original vision Mm -hmm. versus end up somewhere completely different because it ended up being a road to where you didn't realize you were going to go? Yeah. (laughs) We need a glue that really works. And they end up with post-it notes, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) you know. But here's the thing that I've discovered. Okay, so just looking at a collaboration that's really been successful for me is the Hay House, Tucker, Max, Ben Hardy collaboration. Intuitively, it felt good at the beginning. And then it was only because I was explaining it in the 10 times program to people. They said, well, we're not quite understanding why you set up a deal like this. You know, what holds the deal together? And I came to an understanding that everybody in the collaboration has to want to be a hero to the same end user of a breakthrough. In other Mm -hmm. words, we're creating a breakthrough and we're all committed that's going to be a breakthrough for this particular type of person. So, you know, and Hay House had switched over from it being a new age publisher and they wanted to be now serving entrepreneurs, you know, and Tucker Max, it's entrepreneurs creating books for themselves and Ben Hardy wanted to do that. And of course, that's my thing. And I think what holds the deal together is the value creation that you're seeking to have a breakthrough on. You're creating that value for the same end user. You want to be a hero to the same That's one thing that I've discovered that I think is probably pretty safe ground, that it's not what each of you is going to get personally from the collaboration. It's what together you're going to create that's going to create value creation that presently doesn't exist out in the world. Yeah. Having that written down (laughs) is a big help, I think. Yeah. Everybody knows what page you're on. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I find very, very interesting, and I've had a lot of internal strategic coach conversations about this, and I've had a lot of discussions that somewhere 
I think since I was 70, none of my goals are personal goals anymore. You know, I don't have personal goals. I have teamwork goals. In other words, I have personal goals in the sense that I'm contributing to a teamwork effort. And I said, you know, I don't know when it was, maybe when I was 70 or something, but I kind of had an overall feeling that I'm kind of handled for life. You know, like I don't really, really have to improve myself in a personal sense. I only have to improve myself as a team member. In other words, the teams that I'm on, we're on a team right now doing a podcast, and I want to get better at being a better team member in every team that I'm at. But as far as improving my own abilities for the sake of some personal goal, I don't have that anymore. Right. And my sense is that a collaboration is that people are well handled before they get in. They don't need the collaboration to handle some personal issue. You know, money-wise, they're okay. They're handled money-wise and everything because i'm looking at how is this different so we have the next book we're just coming down the quarterly book well the one we just came out with the innovation over envy i'm seeing these two roads that people can take you know in life where we're born into uniquely unequal circumstances you know they even find that with identical twins one of them is five minutes early it has a impact on how they relate to each other. One of them got here five minutes early and the other one defers because that one or rebels against the fact that one of them came in early, you know, and they find, for example, and this is, you know, I don't know what to make of this, that you can have one identical twin who has a hereditary mutation like a blood disease, but the other one doesn't have it. And they find with identical twins, one of them gets all the mutations that are coming through from the mother, from the mother, and the other one doesn't get it at all. You know, as identical as they are, they have a different deal, you know. The question is, do you take complete responsibility for the deal you got, Mm. or are you forever complaining about the fact that somebody else got a better deal. My sense is that this happens before we reason. You know, in other words, I think children at three or four have already kind of chosen a road, but they don't have a thinking ability to even know that they made a decision. The thing that I'm seeing here is that I think Zoom is an inflection point in human history because I'm noticing who's running ahead with Zoom and just loving Zoom. And I'm noticing we have clients, 20% of our clients who haven't come back for a year and their demand is they won't come back until in person. Is it really that high, 20%? Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, we took a real hit. Our registrations are up like the last four months. If we go back 12 months to November, December, January, and February, our registrations are higher now than they were 12 months ago. Because now we're getting people who that's what they want is the virtual, right? Well, they were holding out until it was virtual. (laughs) That's what I mean. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's the travel that was the obstacle. All of a sudden, Australia has become a big market for us. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, we have had more Australians join the program since last September than we have since 1989. Wow. But it just shows you how big travel was a problem. They couldn't overcome the problem. It was such a big problem, and that's been solved. But I'm trying to get a handle on the mindset of why you're holding out. You already know what the program is. I mean, you've some of them have been for years, and they're saying, nope, not until it's in person. And I said, you know, 
this isn't a technology problem. This is a mindset problem, you know, like. Welcome to Cloudlandia. I mean, that's really, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's something that you created that's an obstacle for your progress. Right. So do you want them back is kind of where you're going, right? Which is like when they show up in the room and having not participated for a year, not embracing Zoom, not embracing the new reality, how ambitious and how do they approach even their own life goal setting and experiences if they're not willing to accept that? Yeah. Right. So are there other things going on? And what it suggests to me is the distinction between growth entrepreneurs and lifestyle entrepreneurs, that their lifestyle got upset in a way that they don't find comfortable. And they don't have a growth goal that surpasses their lifestyle discomfort. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll go through a great deal of discomfort if I have a bigger goal on the other side. What do you expect the right blend to be in a world where people are more comfortable traveling again? whether through vaccine or just the numbers being low, what do you expect? How do you think Coach organizes the blend of the two? The team has been asking me about that because, you know, they can ask me about it, you know, as a coach. Right now, the benefits of Zoom outweigh the benefits of in-person for me as being the coach. I agree with that. You know, and I'm going to adjust. I'm a pretty adjustable character But I said, don't make judgments too soon about what's going to happen. I said, there's going to be a point where people have the freedom. You know, everybody has the freedom to kind of choose how they would like to have coach. And I said, don't make a judgment too soon on what happens in the first quarter or the second quarter. I said, I think you need a year under our belts to kind of see how people are choosing. And my sense is that it's probably going to be a hybrid at certain times of the year. Dean, you'd be a good case, you know, if you could forego coming into really cold temperatures. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) And let's say November and February, you'd say, yeah, those I'll do by Zoom. But during the nice season, I like coming to Toronto. I like coming to Chicago when the weather's nice. I'd go for Toronto. Yeah, I'd be okay to never go to Chicago again. Yeah. (laughs) And that's important, but, you know, everybody gets a vote here, you know, like this. And then you see how people are voting. So There's a hybrid where you could do live in Toronto. That's great. Yeah, I think it gets a little funky when some people are there and some people aren't. I really think that, and maybe Free Zone Symposium is kind of the thing that evolves from this, but a meaningful visit for a couple of days. I think the same thing. I go back to like the couples conference you know, I don't go back to the one 20 years ago or 18 years ago that I went to that you spend a couple of days both socializing and yeah. learning and doing things. That meaningful interaction can carry you for a year I agree in person. That. And so as long as if the symposium could develop into maybe add a day, add a little more social, add a little bit more, you know, traditional, your coaching, your traditional coaching, Networking, that whole, yeah. Yeah. then these in-betweens are incredibly complimentary to that. I've met more people in the last year in coach outside of my circle of people that I gravitate to in the workshops. Yes. And it's almost like the roulette when you get into a breakout room. Right. The breakouts, you're forced to be with other you're people. You're forced to not go, to, you know, and I think it's on one side, it was really nice to have a workshop where you kind of knew you'd be with your people that you sat with yeah. at the table and you made sure you covered. But once you establish that, it almost was like sometimes there was an extra person you hadn't been with before. Right. But Zoom workshops is every time you're not every time, but you're really getting introduced to other people that aren't in your traditional thing. I like that. I think that is where it's better on Zoom 
than it was in the workshop because yeah. it gives you the dialogue with others that you don't typically dialogue with. Yeah, it's interesting in a year I've done just closing in on 100 events, and that includes the six-hour, you know, the full workshops, and also includes the connectors. So it's just about 100 events that I've done on Zoom. Even in the shortest ones, the two hours, we have two breakout groups. We have two breakout groups. I try in the six hours to get five in, five breakout groups, plus lunch, you know, because now we have the breakouts. As a coach, I've made every one of them. I haven't missed one breakout group. And what's really, really interesting is that we have bump ups, you know, from the signature program to the 10 times program. And we have bump ups from 10 times program to free zone. And I always say, put the bump ups, get them into my breakout group straight off the bat, because to a certain extent, they've come for me. Uh So, you know, let's make the contact right away. And it's terrific. And then I have OBIs. I had a guy yesterday, you know, has been in the program since 2011. He's just super bright. And he went through three companies in the last 25 years, bought and sold, bought and sold, bought and sold. And, you know, he had lifestyle changes. He started in Ohio, moved to Orlando. Now he moves in Sarasota. So he's got a lot of changes and everything else. He came back yesterday and I had him right off the bat in my first group with me. And he said, you know, first hour, he says, it feels like it was 90 days ago that I was at my last workshop. He said, I feel totally back and everything else. So Zoom to me is much more explorable. It's much more expandable than in person. It seems to have dimensions you don't know about yet. You know, where in person, I don't really feel it does. So I call it Zoom ability. And I said, here are my requirements. These are my Zoom ability requirements. And when we go back to in person, we've got to make the in person as good as Zoom. And I said, that's our challenge, especially with the breakouts. The breakouts could be a mess in the in-person. Like some people decide right at the beginning of the workshop, when we break out, we only talk to each other. You know, or it takes them five minutes to get into their group. Then they say, what are we going to talk about? You know, what do we talk about? And then after the break, it's five minutes. They go to the restroom. They make a phone call. So, you know, like a 20-minute breakout session takes 40 minutes, you know, by the time you get settled back. And I said, can't do that anymore. You know, I said, the time's precious. Yeah, this is great. I was reading for the 10X workshop, I think mine's next month, but I was looking at the tool that you did. And one of the things that you outlined was your, I think it's 10 rules of doing a successful Zoom workshop. Yeah, 10 strategies, yeah. 10 strategies. But I thought the interesting thing was, and I think it might've been in one of the insights where you said, but you make your team rank you or rate you on how well you did on those 10. And I think that's pretty cool. The idea that this is the scorecard, but you gave them a very measurable way. And I don't know if you did this in your other workshops, Dan. Maybe this is something you carried over from your real world one. But No, I never did that. Oh, you didn't? Right. So I think it's interesting for you to get that feedback in real time for you to almost perfect those 10 strategies. That's a welcome approach to not formalizing Zoom calls, because I think it's not about formalizing them, but systematizing them in a way that, you know, the 12th month of them is 10 times better than the first month. And by the way, 12 months after that, there'll be continued improvements from there. But I I really like that you went out and outlined them and then asked your team for feedback on it. I introduced these right off the bat when a workshop starts. I I just want to let you know, 
that we're a year down the road with Zoom, and we've noticed that certain things work and certain things don't work about Zoom. And so I've taken all of our experience and I've created these 10 strategies. And I'm just laying this out for you because I'm going to be following this for the whole day. So if you notice what I'm doing or anything, this is why I'm doing it. And at the end, I'm just going to ask you, are there three of them that would improve your Zoom performance when you have Zoom meetings? And, you know, what's your insights about this? And I said, anytime during the day, you want to ask a question, just stop the action and I'll talk about it. But I have a team member who's actually getting a consensus of the other team members on how Dan did, you know. I'm really up to that kind of game, you know. I want to ace the system you know, and everything else. But I'm very conscious during the day that I'm being judged and I'm being scored and, and I like it, you know, I like it. So then I said, we had our coaches in a couple of weeks ago. We had our coaches in once a year. We have them in for three days. Now it's Zoom, but usually it's live. And I took them through that. And, you know, they're on the spectrum from can't get enough of this to, you know, I'll be happy when we get back to in-person workshops. Right. I said, you know, we know a lot of things that are better than the way that other people are doing Zoom. You know, I still go to things where someone talks at you for an hour and you don't get a break for two hours. Right. You know, and I said, you're dead after 50 minutes. I have to tell you, from 50 minutes onward, anything you're pouring into that cup is ending up on the floor. So I said, you know, you don't take a break after the first hour. They aren't learning anything in the second hour, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I said, Try it out. I said, I'm ADD, you know, I'm a 10 quick start in ADD. So I'm a canary in the coal mine here. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Any noxious gas, I'm going to pick up the gas before anybody else does. So this has been part one of our in-depth free zone discussion among Steve Crying, Dean Jackson, and myself. Tune in to part two.